What is the Gen AI opportunity in tax? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. Tax has always been an area of heavy data and heavy rules. Generative AI opens up an opportunity for tax professionals to use natural language that they're comfortable using to query the data, to ask different questions, and provide new business insights. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Gio Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, there's been a lot of media news and it's a cliche and I'm sure it's been repeated over and over again in headlines, but we're at like the end of an era for like the era of journalism that we both came up in. I feel like before we start this episode, we should just get the disclaimer out right away, which is this is probably going to be our most navel-gazing episode ever. Yes, and I think we're even planning on releasing this as like a Friday bonus episode of the week just to acknowledge that it's like, okay, if you don't want to know anything about the media business or Joe and Tracy or all these things that are sort of like endemic to their lives over the last decade, (laughs) feel free to uh, skip this one. Yeah, this is media talking about the media, but you are right. There have been some things that have been happening lately. Specifically, we've seen BuzzFeed News announcing that it will be shutting down. I think there was a report recently about Vice Media potentially filing for bankruptcy. It feels like the end of an era for a lot of these digital-focused media startups. No, I mean, it's definitely true. And, you know, as listeners do know, we both started our careers sort of in digital, basically, roughly the same time, basically right at the worst of the great financial crisis. And out of this period came all of these new experiments and, you know, upstart media companies that were supposed to dislodge the incumbents. You know, the blog at FT. At the I was Financial at, Times, Alphaville, yep. I was at Insider, and Insider is still chugging. They recently, they did announce layoffs, but of all of the companies, maybe we'll talk about this, of all of the companies, I kind of feel like they're like the winner that nobody talks about in this I noticed you call it Insider and not its original name. Do you know, Have you just erased that from your mind? Do you know what the original name was? Was oh, it not it? Cluster Stock? It was, yeah. yeah. Okay. Cluster <laughs> Stock. Because everyone's like, all right, Business Insider, but we had names even before then. And even before then was Silicon Alley Insider. Anyway, yeah. it's a pretty pivotal time. And, you know, I guess the question for all, was this all a ZERP phenomenon or was this something else or like what was going on there? Well, I think there is an overlap with some of the bigger, you know, I might be reaching here, but I think there is an overlap with some of the bigger themes we've been talking about recently, which is, I guess, the sort of attrition of tech or the tech strains yeah. that we've seen. And the thing that digital media has in common 
with a lot of the tech industry has to be venture capital financing. It has to be there was a story about what was going to happen in the digital media market. You know, people talked about these big numbers, huge audiences that could now be reached through online publishing. So it feels like there is some overlap there. Yeah. And of course, you know, when I was at Business Insider, like there was a really intense pressure month after month to hit new traffic goals. Mm -hmm. And part of that was like clearly like ad sales, right? They're like sort of on some level a function of traffic. But I think the other thing is they're a function of telling a story to your investors for your next round. Yeah, you have lots of lines going up. Lots of lines. And so regardless of whether you're actually profitable or not at any given moment, if the lines are up, you can live because you can get that next round of funding. Classic tech growth story. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk all about this because we're going to be speaking with Ben Smith. He is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Semaphore. Previously, he was a media columnist at the New York Times. And previous to that, he was the editor-in-chief at uh, the aforementioned BuzzFeed News, which changed the world. And he's the author of the new book, Traffic, Genius Rivalry in the Billion-Dollar Race to Go Viral. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Thank you so much for having me. And I should say, like, as a genuine fan and listener of the show, I can't imagine that anybody does not want to know all the details of your lives. I certainly do. Thank you so much for saying that on air. I have a question, which is, why did BuzzFeed News exist? And the reason I ask specifically is that in my mind, as a competitor to it, when I was at Insider for several years, my perception was that BuzzFeed itself was this huge traffic monster, cultural juggernaut, everyone knows about the quizzes, et cetera, and that BuzzFeed News was there to like raise the prestige of the brand maybe for advertisers. Is that correct? Like, Why did it exist? So that's partially correct, but I think you have to put your head back to 2011, 2012 when we started it, when the kind of thesis that we were working on was that in part that the Facebook news feed was this central pillar of society and people loved it. People loved the idea that quizzes, that memes, that baby pictures from your friends were all mixed up together. Mm. And at BuzzFeed, among other things, they noticed that on big news days, their traffic went down. And so both in a, and, and so both kind of in a functional sense, huh. that was part of this mix that, again, that people liked that this stuff was all mixed together. And so it was part of the mix that I think Jonah and the, Peretti, the founder, thought people wanted. But also BuzzFeed was, you say it was a cultural juggernaut, but actually it was struggling for relevance. It was part, it was halfway to feel this being seen by advertisers and by the platforms and by everybody else as a media company, halfway to being seen as being like 9gag or like break.com or like a generation of, you know, cheeseburger, a generation of an earlier generation of essentially meme sites that got wiped out in that era because the platforms considered them spam. Well, I was going to ask, how much did the content mix become a problem for BuzzFeed overall? Because it was trying to do something kind of unusual in the sense that it was trying to do very important, sometimes investigative journalism, you know, hard news, while at the same time publishing uh, (laughs) memes and, you know, like 10 of the best random products you can buy off of Amazon kind of lists. Yeah, you know, in this moment of, which again, this very kind of optimistic, fresh moment of social media in 2012, it seemed plausible that people liked the mix, the consumers liked the mix, actually, and that the same people who liked memes wanted to get hard news and wanted to get them in the same place, which was to say Facebook slash BuzzFeed. I think, as you suggest in the question, 
that really starts to change. Like news got less fun as the decade wore on, not from some technical perspective, but because in fact, like there was this huge rise of right-wing populism, of left-wing populism, of super confrontational public politics hmm. playing out through people screaming at each other on social media. And suddenly this idea that the Facebook feed is this delightful mix of all uh. these different things kind of curdled. And I think that was a huge problem for us that we never totally found our way out of. Right. So you had this like weird mix of maybe the ultra right talking about fascism and then like 10 clapback tweets that you've never seen before. And they kind of sit badly alongside each other. Well, no more. You have a list of like, you know, things you only knew if you grew up Persian in New Jersey and a bunch <laughs> of cute cats and a story about Donald Trump. And the reactions to that story about Donald Trump are totally polarizing. Oh, I see. Okay. And yeah, and maybe, you know, and maybe the, I mean, there's always this huge brand problem in question that like BuzzFeed News, it's like calling something like, I don't know, Disney News or something. Like it's a weird brand, but there was a window in which we leaned into it and people liked it. And then I think the broader social forces changed and turned against that. None of this speaks to the business model or anything else, but yeah. that was, that was a real, you could feel as Trump rose, you could kind of feel the weather change and feel that brand get worse. Well, man, there's a, there's a lot there. I hadn't really thought about that element, though, that like basically people just got angrier with each other, you know, at the end of the 2010s than they were at the beginning of the 2010s. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the story of Facebook and BuzzFeed yeah. was end of Twitter and BuzzFeed was was a big bet on news being distributed by social media. You know, just on this brand question, though, and we can sort of pivot. You know, when I was at Insider, I always sort of felt this sort of like, you know, my boss, then Henry Blodgett, again, winner of this whole era, in my opinion, and completely brilliant media executive. But I also sort of felt like this, like, well, I mean, I guess the question is like, to some extent, if you're like going up against the New York Times or the Washington Post or Bloomberg News, et cetera, does the existence of the sort of like meme side of the operation create some sort of like hard cap in terms of really how far you can go with like prestige? I mean, because I, I got the sense at Insider that on some level that you could like get, win Pulitzers and do great work, et cetera. But on some level, you kind of have to pick one or the other. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there was a path for BuzzFeed where at its best, or maybe I'm somebody who I actually like think prestige is overrated yeah. and sometimes counterproductive. But there's, you know, there was journalism you could do that was the, particularly focused on stuff that the majority young women who were sharing memes cared about a lot, which could be like sexual assault at Massage Envy, for instance, was something we wrote about. I think at our best, we were like a, a lot of the coverage you know, was in sync with the people who were reading the site and was really hard-hitting journalism that also overlapped with the interests of regular people reading BuzzFeed. What should financial services C-suites be thinking about around Gen AI? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real Time Business. So what should C-suites be thinking about? What's the one key takeaway they should be aware of? Explore the potential of this technology, but with right safeguards in place. Clearly, the technology is fascinating. The potential it provides is something that we have not seen this far. 
so there is merit to exploring it but at the same time it is extremely important for organizations that are operating in regulated industries such as ours be guarded and have the right safeguards in place to protect themselves from the risk they are exposed to with this technology right stop thanks vidya learn more at ui.com good song the johnny carson theme right hey who wrote that skip who do you think it's your buddy hi everyone i'm paul anka and i'm skip bronson and what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies you get our way a brand new show from my heart podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun hear about michael bublé's entrance into show business and get business insight from mark burnett find out what scares my son-in-law jason bateman and discover the bragging rights that come with beating michael jordan at golf together we know just about everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast talk to us about how we i mean the book is called traffic so mm. i assume you have a lot of opinions on the importance of traffic and how it works but talk to us maybe specifically about how that fed you know the lines going up on the chart mm. how that fed into the business model and shaped the offering how were people thinking about traffic as a monetizable mm. commodity back then yeah and i guess and you know the i spent a lot of time in the book and the sort of a lot of the reporting of the book for me particularly was on the stuff that happened before I got there which is to say kind of the discovery of traffic in the mid aughts by the folks at you know your team at, at insider a little bit later but early on by Jonah Peretti who was then at Huffington Post and Nick Denton at Gawker and it's interesting you use the word commodity because they really did think it was a commodity it was something where they could you know for every individual who clicked on their sites they could get something like a $9 CPM which is a pretty good rate then and sadly now I mean they had CPM is uh, a, per 1000 per, clicks cost for so a $9 for 1000 clicks yeah okay and they had i think every reason to think that wow like at this very rudimentary stage of this business we're getting $9 for a really crappy product we're going to make that product way better and we're going to scale it a lot more and if this is a classic commodity we're going to make an enormous amount of money and so there are folks on traffic they have different theories about it denton who started gawker had this very both very ideological guys actually had this theory that traffic is really to be found in kind of like ripping the mask off of society's hypocrisy of your own hypocrisy mm -hmm. if if your audience wants pornography give them pornography if they want sort of malicious he had gossip, a porn give them that. There he, was a, in exactly, the, in he the had Gawker an actual family, porn there was a porn site. Yeah. Fleshbot. But also, if they wanted sort of stuff that appealed to their worst instincts, give them that. Don't make them pretend to be better. Mm. And then also sort of rip the mask off traditional journalism and print the stuff, the sort of mean, sometimes gossipy stuff, or sometimes true hard truths that journalists say to each other at a bar, but don't print. So that's one theory. Jonah's theory was totally different. He saw this kind of just the bubbling of this social media world. And the theory that we had at BuzzFeed. This is Jonah Peretti, Jonah Peretti of BuzzFeed. Founder of Huffington yeah. Post and then of BuzzFeed. And what he saw in this social media world, which also was true for a time, that was that the stuff that people would share 
tended to be very positive. Like you weren't going to go out and, I mean, God forbid, share insane, screamy politics because that would make you look like a crazy person. <laughs> no one would do that. What you would share on Facebook was, you know, fundraisers for earthquake victims or lists of cute cats. And so he sort of, what he built was around an idea at first that people were going to be distributing media themselves hand to hand and doing it in a way that reflected their best selves. And so there was very different tactical ideological approaches to the internet. This is actually something that I wanted to ask you about, which is it feels like the way people thought about traffic is it's always good. Eyeballs are always good. But it sort of ignores, it feels to me today like one way of generating a lot of traffic is through the hate read. You get, you know, you have something saying something provocative. You're still going to get a lot of eyeballs on it, but you can't tell whether people are reading that because they think it's a valuable piece of journalism or they're reading it because people like to read those sort of hate reedy, you know, like dog whistle type pieces. How like is that something that you ever noticed? Oh, yes. Yeah. Is there something I ever noticed that people hate? Yes, um, <laughs> for sure. And I would say, though, if you're, you know, if you are thinking of traffic as a commodity, what you're really selling is the sp the white space next to that article. And so you don't care if people love it or hate it. If, if the sort of purest logic of traffic, I guess the, which turned out, by the way, I, to be f not how it worked. And I think not how good editors ever quite saw it. The way I should have phrased the question is like, did that eventually impact the business model? You know, I don't think that it's hard to think of a site that really lived on hate reads. I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting one. There was something sort of similar. That, the marriage that was, announcement section of the New York yeah, Times. There's, there's that. I mean, there was also there was a site called ExoJane. That oh, our producer just in the message thought catalog. Thought, That's a good yes, one. Yes, there was a kind of writing, and I actually that was basically about ex having mostly young women write in a totally unselfconscious way about their personal experiences in a way that was torqued by often by kind of sophisticated cynical editors to make them look like horrible people hmm. so people would attack them on the internet i mean that to me is one of the really worst forms of internet journalism and did like lots of damage to these writers in the name of traffic and there and more broadly there was it was a kind of i think and this came out of gawker particularly came out of jezebel which i, I hmm. you know i was not a reader at the time in 2007 but was this incredibly high impact piece of internet history that for a time I think if you, it's actually kind of amazing to look at. You know, they launch in 07 with this. The first thing they do is offer a bounty for um, anybody who can find an unretouched photograph from a women's magazine. <laughs> and and they get it. They have $10,000 and they pay it out and they get an unretouched photo of Faith Hill, which before her freckles and smile lines have been removed. And really like launched this incredibly effective assault on this, on everything that was wrong with women ma women's magazines, the way they distorted the images of people's bodies, the way there were no black models. And they, and they also published this very like frank revelatory writing about sex and about women's lives. And they also developed this unbelievably intense and pathological relationship with their commentators that sort of drove them totally nuts and that who in the commenters felt they owned them and attacked them. And some of the writing was the kind of writing we're talking about where you people sort of expose their own lives and then face this intense and very personal criticism. And it got enormous amounts of traffic. And Nick Denton, who didn't really love the content, kept it going because it got so much traffic. But um, it was both it was this sort of early glimpse, both at the power of that kind of social media age, and then also it had damage. It's sort of the emotions it could provoke and how damaging it could be for, for the writers. I want to jump ahead just to like a few years. You know, 
it's funny because the day I literally the day before the news came out that BuzzFeed News was shutting down, I was thinking about this sort of now or famous, I guess it was a letter to the editor of The All where someone is like, I hate my life because I don't work at BuzzFeed. I was literally just sharing this article with someone the day before the news. And the psychological hold that I think like in the BuzzFeed heyday had over everyone else in the media was like extraordinary. The pressure to keep up the perception. And I think, it, you know, I think there are reports went all the way up to like, you know, board level at the New York Times, like feeling like, what are we going to do about this juggernaut? It's so innovative. They keep coming up with new story types and traffic and influence and all the young people prefer to get the news there. But what I'm curious about actually is like, What's the date that peaked? 2015. So it was basically like that all, it was basically like, and why 20, like what happened? Like what was the turning point in 2015? I mean, to me, you know, BuzzFeed was this bet. And and to some degree, all these companies were a bet on on that this new form of distribution Mm. was durable and that the economics would work themselves out. And I think everyone now totally rightly can say this was always idiotic. Maybe it was, but the basic metaphor analogy everybody's using was cable. You know, there mm, were these new right. this new form of distribution had been laid out. The people owning the cable lines knew that they needed quality content to co- populate it, and they reached a like economic arrangement where ESPN, CNN, MTV become you know become these great businesses, and that's what I think BuzzFeed and others imagined they would become. And I think 2015 was the was really where it started to become a little clear a that that these platforms themselves are pretty fragile and sort of susceptible to all these social pressures and be that a lot of that that they weren't going to move away from their total reliance on user generated content to create a business mm. for publishers. Mm. So uh, just on this note, my impression was always that in addition to the distribution issues that you just mentioned which we should dig into a little bit further, but one of the, one of the big problems here was that the traditional media companies also just got better at doing what a lot of the digital media mm. companies were doing. And you know, where I worked Alphaville, it wasn't necessarily a traffic juggernaut, but it was kind of pioneering of a certain type of journalism, certain experiments with, you know, audience engagement and events and things like that. And what always tended to happen within the Financial Times was that we would do something new and exciting and innovative, and then that would just get replicated by the FT itself. And so it becomes hard to sort of maintain the momentum of having new types of exciting journalism at a constant rate. Yeah, that's a sign of a pretty healthy organization, basically. And but the, and the, but there was this arrogance that really came out of the aughts, where we were looking at the New York Times, at the CBS News, and it was just it just seemed so clear that they were doomed, that they could never figure out digital media, that their leadership just was terrified of it, and had no idea what was going on. And I think this arrogance lasted a long, you know, long past its expiry date. And I was we just published on Semaphore an excerpt of, from the, my book of when Jonah Peretti goes is invited into the New York Times in 2015 to tell them how to do their jobs. And it's a me- board. He's speaking to a board meeting, and the interviewer asks him what he would do if he was named CEO of the New York Times. And he says, "Well, first, I would ask you for a raise, <laughs> and then second, I would go into my office, shut my door, and cry." Yeah, and <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a lot of hubris. Yeah, but you know what? Actually, by then, the Times had started to figure it out, and they didn't follow fast. And, and in fact, a number of traditional media companies, I'm thinking of the Washington Post, had really. Screwed themselves by trying to follow fast. Like they had mm. copied this thing and that thing in blogs and never really 
built anything. The Times followed slowly and carefully, but very, very deliberately and very effectively. And I think suddenly we looked up and yeah, they had copied a lot of our tactics. They had taken a lot of our best people and had closed that gap and then had could deploy their huge advantages around brand, around resources. Right. You know, you mentioned the the doomed cable analogy and some of like that peak. And one sort of phrase that I think lives rent-free, so to speak, in the head of many journalists, to digital journalists is, quote, the pivot to video. Mm. And all of these, the pivot to video, we're going to do video. And my impression- Didn't we just launch a video product, uh, Joe? <laughs> Wait, are we being filmed? Uh, we're, <laughs> no. I'm still soaking wet. It was raining outside. <laughs> we did, we, Odd Lots is, in fact, doing a pivot to video. No, it's kind of. But my impression is like, what happened? Facebook came to a bunch of publishers and said, we will you'll go viral more if you do video. Oh, yeah. Well there's a lot Who not, was driving this? There's higher CPMs and you're gonna do really well and so build all these expensive video studios and you're gonna make a lot of money. Is that basically what happened? Then it didn't materialize in the end? Yeah, I find it a little hard to, I mean, to be mad at Facebook for this. They just kind of randomly gave a bunch of publishers money <laughs> and in some did redeploy their existing writers who weren't good on video to make videos. I mean, I you know, there was, there has been in society a pivot to video. There's this widely used product called TikTok, which is reliant on short video. So, I, I mean, I think the notion that news was going to be delivered in video by people who were terrible at making videos was probably <laughs> not the case. But, and it was a sign, I think it was, it came as a lot of these digital publishers you know, we're scrambling for revenue, trying to figure out how their businesses were supposed to work. And 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 so a pivot was a pretty scary thing. Can we talk more about the distribution channels here? Because I think that's the subtext of a lot of what we're talking about, yep. which is you had this explosion of digital media, but then at the same time, you had a handful of distribution platforms. So things like Google, Facebook, Apple, that were growing more and more powerful and sort of more concentrated in their own monopoly power when it came to distributing the news. So how much of that was a negative force on the digital media business? Well, it was the digital media business. I mean, it was a hugely positive force, right? Much of the digital media business, and certainly really BuzzFeed above all, was a just all your chips on the table bet on Facebook and subsidiarily mm. Twitter and Pinterest and others, and that they were going to be your distribution. And that again, like Jonah Peretti's basic theory, which I think you can argue now about whether it was true or not, was that Facebook and these other platforms would find that they had a need for quality content to retain their users to compete against places like Netflix, and that they would eventually start paying for higher and higher quality content as other platforms head through history. And that just did not happen, and that bet went totally wrong. Let's. Here's a 2023 question. How old is Semaphore now? About it. About six months. Six months. Where does traffic come from today? Mm. Or where does audience, if you want to redefine that, come from in 2023? Because I, you know, it doesn't feel like many things like go viral at any level anymore. Yeah, it's such a totally different world. I mean, newsletters are really yeah. important to us and probably the sort of core of our distribution. The, the web exists and it's a very familiar space to me for someone who's been kind of looking at traffic for 20 years and that the Drudge Report is a great, is a really important, many people continue to go there. There's a set of kind of, what I think of as Asian style aggregators, some Asian, some specifically out of Asia, smart news, news break, little send traffic, flipboard indoors. But in a weird way, it's this internet from 
15 years ago before social media existed yeah. that has has returned. And then, you know, we do a lot of events, which people really like, which is, a, you know, the most intimate and direct form of audience. So is that the future of traffic and audience? Is it the sort of smaller scale develop it organically or are there still the big channels? I know you mentioned Judge Report, but is anyone still trying to target, you know, Facebook exclusively now? You know, Facebook is just not on our radar as hmm. a distribution channel at all. I mean, it's a really, it's, I mean, that was probably the biggest surprise to me in starting a new thing. And I'm not sure there's one future. I mean, I think what it, we're really looking at is a much more splintered landscape in which, mm. among other things, like the web itself and traffic is yeah. one of the splinters. Is there like ever going to be another publication that tries to be a, you know, like the thing about Insider and the thing about BuzzFeed and the thing about Gawker through all of the various like Gawker sub verticals is that they were essentially attempts to replicate or go after the New York Times and to create these all in one news packages, Huffington Post as well, obviously like destinations that had everything like would anyone try that again to sort of like create an all purpose uh, news brand? What, what kind of an idiot would do something like that? Well, actually, I mean, I mean, you don't have sports. I mean, like no, you, you know, at some, I, I, you know, we're. I would say, would, I would, would say, for launch sports. I would say nobody would would try to would imagine that you can do it in a kind of explosive, yeah. flip the lights on and reach a billion people in three right. years kind of a way. I mean, I think. I do think that it's again a weird changing moment where what people want is some is people are is the challenges are different. If like you know when we were starting all this stuff, it was so cool to be able to read read publications from all over and hear voices yeah. from all over. Now people are drowning in that and are right. looking for help navigating it. And if you can do that well, that's real value. But it does feel like a kind of interregnum where there's some next thing and we haven't totally seen it yet. generative AI impact the way financial services firms work? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Business. At an enterprise level, how will it impact the way we work? Just like how internet changed all our lives, this technology has the potential to have a step change in how we fundamentally operate. But uh, let me give you a few examples of what some of the use cases our clients are exploring. We are seeing our clients explore a few knowledge management use cases. For example, in, in case of wealth and asset management, providing their financial advisors with right information so that they can serve their clients better. Similarly, a claims agent in insurance or a contact center representative in case of banking and capital markets. The, the theme that we are seeing is where the machine comes in and provides contextual insights to enable the humans make better decisions, better actions, in a faster manner. Learn more at ey.com. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including 
sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before. Tell it like it is and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We haven't really talked about the funding side, which I think is important, but we saw a lot of venture capital money flood into the space in the sort of 2010s. What was the story back then? And then fast forward to today, are there any VCs out there who are very excited about the future of digital media? I assume there are some because Semaphore got some VC funding, I believe. But like, what is the story now? Yeah, we didn't actually get any oh, VC sorry. funding. And I think, you know, that was certainly a lesson I feel like I learned from that era, the expectation of fast, massive returns. And we talk about digital media, but we're really talking about the news business, the journalism business. That's a really unrealistic expectation and not something that we wanted to promise that we would in four years have, you know, multiply our valuation by a thousand or whatever VCs expect. You know, these people aren't well, I don't know. I don't. They're not widely seen as idiots, and they were making these big bets on all of the publishers we've mentioned. Yeah, because they imagined that there was a world in which they were companies, you know, in which Vice would be Disney or which BuzzFeed right. would be NBC Universal, and these would go to massive, massive scale. Mm. It's you know, it is interesting to think back to how could they have thought such a thing, and I think that cable analogy tells some of that story. But I don't really see any VCs anywhere near the media business right now. Can I just, a quick detour, because we've been talking about Insider and, what was Vice? Because I actually, like, people talked about Vice a lot, but, like, I never, like, knew someone who, like, went to Vice.com. Like, what was Vice? Oh my, I know, it's, it's you know, I, I wrote this whole book about traffic, and Vice isn't really in it, because they didn't get any traffic. They were a, <laughs> yeah, I never they were knew. the purest, best brand yeah. of the digital media era. Shane Smith was the best advertising salesman anyone has probably of our generation and best equity salesman <laughs> of our generation. And they did have this brand that really stood for something. They made some incredible documentary, mini documentaries yeah. um, that really caught people's attention and defined a style of telling mm. stories. They did not ever really build digital audience. And what they were able to do for a time was to convert that brand into a television production company that made a pretty good news show for HBO. But the television production business, I mean, you think the digital media business is tough. I mean, that's a really tough business as well because you can get your show canceled, which is ultimately what happened. Sorry to keep jumping back in time, <laughs> but I think it sort of informs the current state of the market. There was a moment when Jonah Peretti was talking about like maybe the media could get together to give them some more bargaining power mm. over the platforms, the distribution channels. Was that ever a viable solution to some of the issues we've been talking about? Yeah, Jonah in, partic in particular had an idea that you could basically, if you rolled up enough scale on digital media that you could get gain leverage against Facebook in particular. I mean, you see why that makes sense. I mean, it's a very classic way of thinking about a market. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there is this underlying problem that what these guys were selling was, you know, that it was not a commodity, that scale was infinite, that Facebook, whether or not they had access to, you know, high quality journalism, at least to the thought that they were could reach every single person on the planet forever with their better mousetrap and didn't really need you. Again, I think as you look at social media and you watch it unravel, it's not crazy to think about, huh, like maybe these, maybe 
maybe these social platforms should have taken more seriously the idea that they should have been pivoting towards subscription mm. services with, with high quality content, since that seems like those are the companies that are now winning. Mm. But that was, it, but it also seems in retrospect that that was never going to happen, and it was crazy to imagine it would. So speaking of bargaining power, you know, I was at Insider for six years, and they were very good for my career, et cetera. I wouldn't trade that for anything, except that they were extremely psychologically and physically demanding. I basically, I worked seven days a week. I would get up early on weekends to post. I would probably work 12 hours a day on the weekdays. I would wake up sometimes so stressed out, I would like punch a pillow a few times. And the reason I bring up bargaining power is that I think a lot of people don't like that. And a number of newsrooms have unionized. And I'm sort of curious, like I left Insider prior to that newsroom having unionized, but BuzzFeed News did unionize while you were the editor-in-chief there, right? Yeah, that's right. How did that change that? Was there like a noticeable difference in the way like this sort of like post, 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 post that I like grew up in? Like, did that change or was there like a, did it shift anything when the newsroom unionized? You know, I mean, maybe we had already moved a little past the, mm. the era that you're talking about where yeah. you were in a personal foot race with Twitter. Yeah. And you were always second, which right. is pretty amazing. <laughs> um, like no one else could manage it. You were the fleetest of foot. It was crazy, but it did seem stressful. I was still second, yeah. And I was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, in that race too at various times. No, I don't think people were. I don't think people unionized because they wanted to work less hard. I think it was a sense of wanting control over your life and your work in this very stressful, chaotic moment in America, not just in you know in the news business in particular, and wanting protection against the downside at a pretty gloomy seeming moment. Yeah, but you know, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal have had unions forever. I think right. it's you know it's an industry that has a history of pretty strong unions. I mean, I think there's this other challenge right now, which is that newsrooms, good newsrooms are really egalitarian and feel it. Mm -hmm. And unions are part of that culture. And at the same time, the this ecosystem rewards individual journalists who get their, their whatever, you know, they, they hate, we all hate the word, words like influencer and brand. And, but in fact, that is, it, it's an ecosystem that rewards that and, and figuring out how you blend those cultures, I think is a big kind of newsroom challenge. Since we mentioned Twitter, it has been interesting watching the uh, slow implosion of, of Twitter at this time, but both Joe and I, our careers have certainly benefited from that platform. What would be the impact of Twitter, you know, suddenly mm. going away or either becoming irrelevant on the media industry? I mean, I think we're halfway through that process and you're seeing it. I think it, it, it means that as a consumer, I mean, I'm currently, and I don't know if you feel this or if your listeners feel this, but I wake up in the morning and I want to, my main use case for Twitter had been, what is happening now? Mm -hmm. right. And it doesn't do that anymore for no. me. Mm. Just like, what are the four news stories I need to be watching? I need to go to the front page of the New York Times or the Drudge Report or or 17 other places. And actually a lot of it, some of like, that's definitely a, like a job we feel can be done. Yeah. That we're trying to do every morning with Flagship is like, here is what is happening in the world because that is a service Twitter used to provide. They have... What, it now, what Twitter now provides is this riveting story about itself, which I find very interesting <laughs> as a longtime Twitter user. But, right. And I watch it That's for that. That's most of the value now is to see what people are saying about Twitter. Yeah, but it doesn't do that particular thing. <laughs> um, and it doesn't, you know, and it's, yeah, and it's just so, so, but I think as a newswire, as a sort of user, it's mm. become less useful as a journalist. It, it was a good place for people to build their brands. To some degree still is. I think in certain spaces, I think in economics, yeah. in AI, 
there are really interesting like threads of conversation that are still there. And you could imagine, I mean, I think Reddit is a really interesting example. Like there's a social network that it didn't go away. Actually, mm. it's probably the best place on the internet, but it's also not centrally relevant right. to news and culture. And I think there's a path for Twitter that, that is that. Okay, so you mentioned AI. Actually, it's funny, Tracy and I recorded an episode earlier in the day and we decided that well from now on i guess there's always going to be an ai question probably in every interview at least it's usually going to be how is ai going to make this worse but 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 actually like as someone who makes my living with words in one way or another a i'm pretty blown away by what ai can do and in my mind i have a fair amount of anxiety that at some point in a few years Someone could say, you know, I'd really like to hear Ben Smith on the Odd Lots podcast. <laughs> and rather than waiting for us to like book Ben Smith and then get it out a week later or whatever, they just say, what would it be like? And then they run it through a voice generation thing. And they have like a pretty good version of the Odd Lots podcast where Joe and Tracy interview Ben. I'm unironically anxious that this is like a real possibility, but in like the next few years, like, does that worry you at all? It worries me. I don't think I've quite figured out the scenario that's really going to freak me out because I don't I'm not sure it's that. I mean, I think I don't I think there is already enormous amounts of sort of, you know, copy pasta, random generated content on the Internet. And the fact that you could get someone to read it aloud in my voice, I'm not sure who that's for. Like, I'm not sure we're I mean, I think there was this sort of Google centric view of the Internet where if you just sprayed garbage content everywhere, you would occasionally but, make a few pennies. My concern is that it's not going to be garbage, that it actually will scan the corpus of all Ben Smith content and be pretty good at sort of figuring out what you're going to answer, that it'll scan Joe and Tracy episodes and kind of in, be good at figuring out the questions we would ask. And be I, actually, combine I actually I don't you, worry about that. What I worry about is because it will come up with something predictable what humans will have to do what human journalists will have to do is become even oh, yeah. more extreme and unpredictable yeah. no it's honestly really interesting. But yeah. I, I mean i don't think your audience wants that like i think you underestimate your audience like <laughs> i think if you okay. if you flagged in advance of this episode was entirely ai generated from from re-scrambling the corpus of things we've said before they wouldn't listen mm. yeah i don't know but i also and i also i guess i sort of come from like the sort of scoop world of journalism. Like I care a lot about right. reporting and it isn't, and that's a kind of journalism where not only is it's sort of a little harder to see AI mm-hmm. disrupting it, but also over, you know, over the last 20, 30 years of editors getting worn away in newsrooms, there's been this thing that I've noticed where there's a kind of journalist who was not a particularly good writer. Mm-hmm. And in the old days of tabloids, like, you know, you were a runner and you had a rewrite guy. And as these Metro newspapers ran out of money, the first people to go were these kind of rewrite mid-level editors. And it really disfavored people who did not have fancy educations and or were not good writers, but were really great reporters. Mm-hmm. And if, I don't know if you have somebody who can really report and can't write and wants to use some writing tools, like that's fine with me. Yeah, I remember hearing a story, Tracy, from I forget who it was, someone at the New York Post talking about how you know they'd have the guy go out and it's like, a doctor was found dead in a hotel room with his girlfriend. And then the rewrite guy would be like, yeah. okay, doc with gale pale, like could translate it into New York <laughs> yeah. post speak. Like, and that's, instantly. and that is, and that's like literally what, what, yeah. what, what chat GPT is best at right now. There was someone at the FT who was exactly like that. I'm not going to say who, but I imagine <laughs> but he would make it more boring. 
No, there was someone who was very, very yeah. good at reporting and getting yeah, yeah. the story, but had to have all of their copy rewritten. Oh, they're legendary, every fabulous time. Yeah. magazine writers whose names we all know and admire, whose editors write every word. And like, what's wrong with that? Like, yeah, I think that's it's a different job. It's a great form of news production. It's sort of too bad that it's all been flattened out. And if some of these tools help people write, it's not the most important part of the job. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was I was reading. First of all, I really want to read your book. I haven't done it yet, but. I'm looking forward to it. I was reading instead one of the reviews of the book. I think it was the just one. Just read in, the reviews. The you know, one in the It's like in that movie Metropolitan. Just read the critics. I think it was probably John Gapper or someone like that. But they had a line in there saying that they felt that in the book there was no moral conclusion mm. about this whole episode of digital media. So I, I guess I'd love to hear from you. You know, here's your chance at a clear moral conclusion. Like, what is the big takeaway of the past 10 or 15 years in digital journalism? It's the old apocryphal Zhao and Lai thing, too soon, too soon to tell. But I think I don't know about a moral conclusion. But I would say the thing that surprised me most in the reporting was that that world that we that I was reporting on, that we were all in in the kind of early internet, I think was assumed thought itself to be politically progressive, like without mm. really thinking about it. Mm. These were the internet was where young people got together to elect Barack Obama. And, you know, Barack Obama pays a visit to Facebook, obviously Facebook, you know, it goes without saying yeah. that Facebook is a democratic place where Barack, that is friendly to Barack Obama. And I think the people, some of the people at Huffington Post totally explicitly, their job was to elect Barack Obama. And I think it was a surprise to me in the reporting to see that the sort of people who created the populist right you know, the guy, Chris Poole, who founded 4chan, worked out of BuzzFeed's offices. I don't think he was a conservative, but he built that. Andrew Breitbart was a co-founder of Huffington Post. Steve Bannon comes through and learns from Huffington Post and so on and so on. And then, like, I think if the people who thought that the election of Barack Obama was kind of the apogee of this whole moment yeah. turn around and suddenly actually the election of Donald Trump is the apogee of the moment. And the people who thought they were the main characters actually were the supporting characters and the main characters were these conservatives who'd been, we thought had been hanging around the edges, but actually were the central thrust. Mm. One thing that, you know, since we're talking politics, you know, we have the various cable networks on TV, like in, in the newsroom and they're all on mute. So I don't really listen to them. But one thing I definitely noticed is that like CNN and like maybe some of the others, they've never been able to quit Trump. I mean, it's like Biden has been the president for like over two years now. And I'm pretty sure at least I see as much Trump pretty much constantly. I don't know. I'm just sort of curious, like the lasting, like this very like strange love, hate. I kind of think the media mostly loves Trump, even if like the words are kind of anti-Trump. Like I'm just like what what like the Trump era and beyond has like done to the media. I mean, the rise of this, you know, reality show star turned would be authoritarian is obviously the biggest story in, you know, in this period of American history. So I don't think it's crazy that the media covers it or that its viewers are very interested in it. And, and, but I, but obviously also, you know, TV has its own form of traffic, which is ratings. And there's a sense in which Trump in 2016 was like, sort of providing free syndicated content to CNN that was just putting it on and people were watching it. I mean, Newsmax was competitive with other channels the other day because it just put a Trump speech on unfiltered and CNN is going back to the well and is planning planning a town hall with Donald Trump. Yeah, and I mean- I mean, I think it's, you know, I think sometimes the media overestimates our own role and our own power. And, you know, Trump, in fact, basically was banned from cable. 
Rupert Murdoch said that he was going to make him a non-person. He was banned from the social networks. And he remained very popular because a lot of mm. Republicans really love him and like what he's selling. And maybe we overestimated the role of the media in that. Like they weren't confused about who he was. They hadn't been tricked. They just really like him. And so uh, th- it's not particularly healthy for a country. Like when a country is consuming as much news as this country was yeah. in the period 2016, 2020, that's like not a great sign. It is probably a more normal country that consumes less news. Yeah. And we're headed probably to another national panic attack and consume a lot of news. I do remember before Trump won the presidency, I think I was in Abu Dhabi at the time and I wasn't watching mm. cable news. And I remember coming back to the U.S. for a visit and seeing CNN and it was just Trump, like yeah. wall to wall coverage <laughs> of Trump. And up until that point, I thought like, oh, this is crazy. But then you see him on TV yeah. all the time and you're like, oh, wait a second. But just on that note, I mean, so I think the thing that traffic and cable news all kind of has in common and going back to the question I asked earlier about the hate read is a way to get people's attention is obviously to provoke outrage or to play to previously held opinions. Once that can has been opened, or once that box has been opened, can we ever go back to that sort of like classic, maybe 1950s, 1960s era of, you know, unbiased media coverage, bipartisan coverage that appeals to all types of people, or is that just gone? I mean, I think that specific thing you're talking about isn't so much classic as a sort of temporary product of post-war metropolitan newspaper businesses hmm. that, that were that you know were sell you know were these monopoly advertising businesses right. that wanted to sell to everybody. But I also think you know the, the sort of suddenly the lights turned on when the the data from digital media came in, and suddenly these people who'd been not only flying without instruments, but kind of sleepwalking. You know, they'd been doing the same thing for years and years and and in a pretty, in, in a declining industry. And suddenly they could, you know, they, they were flying with instruments and we could all suddenly see in, you know, in exquisite detail, everyone who was reading everything. And and it, and in many ways, probably, you know, over, over torqued toward that lesson. All right. I have one last question. It's very self-serving for <laughs> me and Tracy, but I feel like to some extent, and tell me if you disagree, to some extent, I feel like when you look at all of the big changes that have undergone the news business, in a way, business news is a bit of an exception and that it's been more stable. And I remember at Insider when you like I'm a huge admirer and was at the whole time of like BuzzFeed News. But I remember I was like paranoid when you guys launched a business section because I was like, oh, now you're going to come. And it didn't really click, in my opinion, like it didn't really work. And generally speaking, it does not feel like the level of disruption and sort of like tumult that many parts of the industry has faced has hit business news quite the same way. And the Wall Street Journal is still powerhouse and Bloomberg is still a powerhouse, et cetera. Is there, do you feel that that's the case? Like what was it about business news, even at BuzzFeed, that made it unlike, say, some of these other categories? Well, I think it was more competitive and it was better resourced and you had healthier institutions. And that's because business is where the money is. Mm. I mean, I just think that's actually why it's a better business than general interest news you know, just for the literal reason that people are making money on what you on what you produce and so they can and trading on it and subscribing. I mean, this institution is probably the best example of that. I'm not kidding about the psychological effects on me of those years. I mean, I've like gotten over it and it's not one of these things like, oh, I need years of therapy. But like those were like extremely stressful years. And I remember before 
BuzzFeed launched its business section just being like insanely stressed. I was like, my life is stressful enough. And now like the news entity that's the juggernaut of all things is coming after business news and now we're done. But um Well I'm glad we didn't we didn't push you <laughs> thank over you. the edge with that one. Thank you for not uh <laughs> thank you for uh yeah. Ben, thank you so much for coming on Oddlaws. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Ben. That was great. Yeah, that was great. Tracy, that was a lot of fun. I hope the listeners found it fun because for me, actually, like, I could talk about this for hours. Like, there are not many topics that we discuss on the show in which I feel like I have expertise. Like, that's why I'm the interviewer. But like on the digital media business of the last 15 years, which we both in, I kind of consider us both experts. Joe, you know which one of us got more traffic last year? Uh, it was you, wasn't it? It was me. Was it? It was like one of those housing stores. What was it? You had some. I mega- had a bunch. I was uh, just behind Matt Levine in oh. the uh, in the traffic ranks. But I actually, that's something we didn't talk about: is the data visibility yeah. because this was one of the like defining things of digital journalism, which was you could see how many people were reading your article in yeah. real time. And that really helped you focus on the type of content you were producing. There's a lot there. I mean, so at Insider. It was on the walls. Like it was on on the Like a big, scoreboard. It was on the scoreboard for everyone to That's see. That's crazy. It was the, I'm telling you, I don't want to totally over exaggerate it and say like, oh, scarred for years. But the stress that, that caused people to like see everyone's traffic on the walls at all the time, it did two things. It drove people crazy and it turned people into absolute juggernauts. And we you could take someone out of school from like Columbia J School or UNC or Duke or Northwestern. And in a few months, they were a traffic monster. But see, this is also why I asked that question about hate reads. Because you can produce a headline that will get a bunch of people to click on it, but not necessarily in a good way. And I feel like a lot of digital journalism was about provoking that response and not necessarily building up a dedicated audience. Henry Blodgett, what it's like to actually eat a cheeseburger, what it's actually, you know, like those were like hate reads about, oh my God, this is so good. But like, but you know, there's no differentiating between someone reading something because it's fair and balanced and accurate and insightful versus someone reading something because it's provocative or stupid or extreme in one way or another. Your point is something I'm very concerned about, about AI, which is if there is this perception that sort of like AI is going to be really good at the sort of commodity normal. And all these Mm -hmm. people in media think like, oh, I got to really like, I have to AI proof my career. Do you have to turbocharge the hot takes to like furnace level? Because it's what social media did. And I think this is, I don't know, I think it's going to be even more extreme. Yeah, that's what I think too. All right. On that happy note, shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. You can follow our guest, Ben Smith. He's at Semaphore Ben and check out his new book, Traffic. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post the transcripts. We have a blog, a newsletter that comes out every Friday. And we have a Discord, discord.gg slash Odd Lots. Listeners are in there 24-7 talking about all this stuff. 
it's really fun. It might even be the future of media. Uh, we could do it. It's really great. I love it. It's a great uh, place to hang out. Leave Twitter and join, uh, join us on Discord. Unironically that. Go check it out. And thanks for listening. It's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Thoughts podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.